Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome into another episode of The Legal Face-Off. If you don't recognize my voice, I'm Kevin Wells from WGN, sitting in as the moderator for Joe Brand today, joined as always by Rich Lankoff of Downey and Lankoff and Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Our first stop is Richard Daner, the founder of the Tobacco Products Liability Project at the Public Health Advocacy Institute and a professor of law at Northeastern University. He's here to talk about the Titan Submersible. Professor, thanks for joining us. So the former Ocean Gate passengers uh, besides the, the fatal one most recently have said that they had to sign liability waivers that explain in detail the risks associated with submersion, including, uh, by one account, mentioning death three times on the first page. How effective do you think those waivers will be in lawsuits by these surviving families in the most recent tragedy involving Ocean Gate? Well, I think uh, in general, I'm very skeptical of waivers. Uh, particularly when they're, you know, sunk in a, you know, whole bunch of, uh, you know, legalese, fine print, and so forth. Uh, even if they're, um, you know, if, if some effort is made to highlight them, but in this case, I would take it much more seriously, because um, this was clearly a, uh, you, you don't, you don't go, you know, in a submersible, ten thousand or twelve thousand feet below the. Uh, uh, see and say, you know, it's piece of cake, do it every day, that kind of thing. Um, you know, this is clearly, the, you know, there's clearly an, a substantial element of risk here. Um, and uh, I would think the waiver ought to protect uh, the company. Now, I don't think there's going to be much left of the company, is my guess. My understanding is they've stopped. Uh, uh, operations. Um, so there's probably not going to be, you know, much money there to sue over. So the whole point may be rather academic, but the, um, um, uh, the, you know, uh, this is a situation where, you know, people understood this was a pretty risky, uh, deal. Now, if it's, um, you know, if they were, um, reckless, I mean, if somebody looked at that and said, you know, everybody knows you can't do it that way, it's not going to work. That would be one thing. Doesn't look quite so reckless to me because apparently they've been, they had, uh, you know, something like 10 previous successful uh, expeditions in this. Um, So, you know, it's not as if, wait a second, this is crazy. It's not going to work. And guess what? It didn't work. Uh, It worked a whole bunch of times. Or, you know, more likely if they had misrepresented something about this, if they had said to the you know, passengers, we have gotten the following kinds of certifications, which, which they hadn't. In that circumstance, if the waiver was obtained by fraud, then it shouldn't be effective. But absent either of those, fraud or recklessness, I would think it probably should hold. 
So, Professor, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, you know, the negligence issue is obviously likely to come up and the analysis of gross negligence versus regular negligence. Um, Obviously, gross negligence is something that is pretty tough to prove. You had mentioned recklessness. Is there anything else you can share for our listeners as to what may constitute gross negligence and how difficult it is to prove? Well, I mean, one thing is I'm not sure whether gross negligence would do the trick in terms of getting by the waiver. I don't know that. My sense is that certainly recklessness would. uh, One didn't agree on that. Yeah. And of course, the gross negligence is just what it sounds like. It's sort of really bad negligence. And, you know, what's really bad or gross negligence is somewhat in the eye of the uh, of the beholder, you know, in in an ordinary thing, if you're talking about a train derailment or something like that, where you've had, you know, probably literally millions of train trips before without derailments, you could say, well, you know, you point to something or other, you say, well, that's probably gross, you know, negligence because, you know, trains shouldn't go falling off the tracks. Um, In a situation like this, where you're dealing with a submersible, which was, you know, admittedly a new cutting edge design, uh, apparently, it took more people while there were plenty of submersibles that had been going, you know, down for, you know, tens of years, uh, dozens of years. But this is, you know, was a larger one. Um, you know, it's it's a new design. You know, one concern, obviously, is it's pretty easy after the fact to say that, you know, these guys really messed up uh, because, after all, you have these, you know, uh, the remains um uh, uh uh you know you, you have you know they're, they're dead they're all dead you know the people are all dead now and uh one would want to look for somebody to blame but you know, i'm not so i don't think there's a bright line there but um uh, i would think again that uh the whatever the however you would characterize the negligence unless it was you know it really depends what the testimony would look like if the testimony was you know, look, this is the physics of the thing. You build this thing, it's going to, it's going to crater, it's going to collapse. Uh, and it did, first time down particularly. Then at that point, it'd be easy to say gross negligence, reckless, whatever. I think where it's, where it had gone down a bunch of times before uh, successfully, uh, that would be, a, I think, a, a hard argument to make. Uh, professor, I'm a defense attorney, and I, I, you know, I defend a lot of companies against lawsuits, and frequently we use waivers as a uh, defense. But putting that aside, I mean, doesn't just at some point don't you just have to apply common sense? And to your earlier point, you know, waiver or no waiver, you went into a tiny capsule and you went to the bottom of the sea looking for the Titanic, right? I mean, as a layperson on the jury, if it gets to that, isn't it just like very obvious that? You knew the risk. What did you think? You were like, you know, getting into a car and going down the street. It's a tiny little tube that you put yourself into. Obviously, anyone would know that the risk is of death. Uh, you know, case closed. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think that this is the kind, I don't know what kind of waivers uh, you, you use and what other kinds of situations you use it in. But I would think, uh, as you suggest, this is sort of the uh, strongest, almost the strongest imaginable situation for 
saying that a waiver should be valid. Yeah, because of all the reasons you pointed to. Yeah, this is this is the kind of thing where people are on notice. This is new. You know, one of the reasons for going down, I don't know the individual's motivations, but certainly part of the reason for going down is you want to be the one doing something new, doing something different. You got the 250000 to spend on this little caper. Um, that's sort of cool. Yeah, maybe even for some people, some element of risk is cool. People go into do extreme sports all the time where part of the uh, excitement is that, yeah, you know, scaredy cats don't do this kind of thing. So all of these are reasons why, in this case, the waiver, I think, should be taken seriously. Also, earlier you mentioned that sometimes the waivers are not followed uh, and are bars to recovery because they're, you know, sunken in the terms of the document. And this was a very long document and they're couched in legalese. On the other hand, you know, these are billionaires who went down on that sub. Uh, presumably they have, you know, uh, an ample supply of lawyers who they could have submitted that document to to go over with a fine tooth comb before they signed it, but they still signed it. So to me, that defense that typically you see, which is that the parties were in an inequitable, unequal bargaining position. Therefore, the party signing the waiver shouldn't be held to it. Doesn't apply in this case. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I put less weight on the billionaire piece. I don't know any billionaires, but my guess is they didn't come with an army of lawyers when it came to signing this thing. Uh, maybe it did. Maybe it was you know emailed to them and they had to you know a week to get it back. At which point, probably would run it by their lawyers. But uh, you know, if they were meeting the the folks and they handed them the form and said, you know, if you want to do it, sign here, be sure to, you know, take a look and notice the, uh, um, you know, this thing, or just, I'm going to give you plenty of time to read it. And this is on the, you know, uh, front page, you know, lying a bold face print death. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot of technical expertise to know what that means. So I would think anybody billionaire or not in this case, um, you know, would be liable for it. I think the, uh, the point you're making is applicable in other cases where you're talking about what's basically a commercial deal, where indeed, of course, on commercial deals, you don't even have to be a billionaire. Billionaire, you know, a billionaire might do the trick. So you're running a company, whatever. Yeah, of course, you run it by your lawyer. But this is not the kind of case. That's the founder of the Tobacco Products Liability Project at the Health Advocacy Institute. He's also been a professor for 54 years right now, spending his time at Northeastern University. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today on The Legal Faceoff. A pleasure. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Stop number two on the legal face-off here on WGN. Former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, Michigan law professor and the host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast, Barbara McQuaid is here to talk about the story of the year, the latest in former President Trump's 37-count indictment. So, Barb, thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Tina. Glad to be with you all. So former President Donald Trump was recently interviewed on Fox News about his 37-count indictment for mishandling classified documents. It was quite the interview, and during that interview, he claimed, among other things, that he was too busy to sift through government records to return the classified materials, which was ultimately what led to his indictment by the Justice Department. What are your thoughts on this, and do you think it was an admission of guilt? Yeah, you know, uh, you and Rich know that there's a reason that lawyers always tell their client when under investigation for crimes to not say anything. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely a, an admission. Uh, for one, it's it's not a defense. I mean, imagine telling the IRS you were too busy to pay your taxes like that's just not going to fly. So it's not a valid defense, but I think it is an admission, not of the entire crime. Uh, you know, it isn't case closed, but it is an admission of one element. That is that he actually did retain these documents. Uh, and remember, at one point he had uh, accused the FBI of planting the documents. Well, now he is admitting that he had them. He just uh, couldn't uh, bother himself to review them before returning them. So I think it is an admission and I think it's something that can and will be used against him at trial. Bro, I assume you're not buying his latest theory that this was a coke induced, a cocaine induced uh, uh, hoax by by Joe Biden under the influence of of the cocaine in light of the uh, discovery uh, last week of cocaine at the White House. But what do you make of the audio that was released, the audio tape that was released of Trump, you know, boasting about these classified documents? How damaging do you think that that will be ultimately? I think it is very damaging. And it's not just the recording, which I think he could defend as you don't really know whether he was showing a document and it's out of context and maybe he was just boasting. I think the word he used was bravado. Um, but they're going to have real witnesses at trial to talk about these things. They're not named in the indictment, but they are described as a writer, a publisher, staffers, uh, a member of a political action committee. And in the indictment, they allege that Trump showed them the document. And so to be able to allege that, they had to have had a witness tell them that. And that same witness is going to testify at trial and I imagine repeat that same testimony. And so I think when you've got the witness describing the scene and then you have the audio recording that corroborates what the witness is describing, that can be very powerful evidence. And it sure sounds like he's waving around some documents, which I think tends to show um, his his mindset, his number one recklessness with the documents, but also the admissions where he says, um, I didn't declassify. You know, I could have when I was president, but I didn't. You know, oh, well, uh, I think that tends to show that he understands exactly how this works. 
So, Barb, on the point about declassifying and classifying documents, for the for those listeners of ours who may not know exactly how that works, who's got the power to declassify documents like the ones that are at issue that Trump took out of the White House? And even if he timely attempted to declassify them, would that maneuver have worked here? So ordinarily, it is the classifying authority that originally designated as classified. And, uh, you know, the attorney general from time to time can um, make requests that things be declassified. And I imagine that as the chief executive of the United States, even though it is not the normal process, the president probably has the constitutional power to declassify things. Now, ordinarily, you have to check that out with the intelligence community and make sure that nobody's going to die as a result. And you have to memorialize it so people know exactly what to declassify. They they mark it, they notate it so that everybody knows this is no longer classified. So the fact that he just sort of says, I just did it in my mind, doesn't really ring true. And I think that's going to be a nonsense argument at the end of the day. Um, but I think one of the things the Justice Department has done here that is very shrewd is the charge they chose to use in this indictment is the Espionage Act, which simply makes it a crime to willfully retain national defense information, regardless of whether it is or is not classified. And so to the extent these things pertain to, as alleged, military secrets and nuclear capabilities and those kinds of things, it doesn't matter whether they are or are not classified. They probably are, as a matter of course, but that legally just ends up being a coincidence in this case because the charge just focuses on the subject matter, which is national defense information. Um, Barb, on on Monday yesterday, uh, Trump's attorneys filed a motion to continue the trial date indefinitely to before Judge Eileen Cannon, who notably is a Trump appointee. Um, you know, judges have wide latitude in setting uh, dates, trial dates, and continuing them uh, if the case warrants it. Uh, of course, Trump, in his filing, articulated through, through his attorneys, articulated the argument that basically Trump's really busy right now running for president. Uh, he's also busy, by the way, facing multiple indictments, multiple suits. Uh, they didn't mention that part, but that's inevitably you know, going to take up a lot of his time as well. But obviously, the the you know what many are, are pointing to as the real reason for this motion is that he's waiting until after the election when he if he wins the presidency, which is a real possibility, given the polls, he will pardon himself as he's referenced in the past. So what do you think the judge is going to do with this motion? Yeah, it's difficult to say. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. As you said, you know, the mere fact that she is a Trump appointee, I don't think uh, should mean that we should not uh, trust her to have integrity. I am a little troubled by the ruling that she made in the search warrant matter last year, where she essentially wrote that a president um, is is it should be held to a different standard than everyone else. That concerned me a little bit. Her decision there was uh, to appoint a special master was ultimately overturned. Um, so I, I give her, you know, I give her a fresh start and a blank, a blank slate. I think that, you know, Trump asking for this is not surprising. Um, I think that the government's uh, request for a trial in December sounds a little ambitious to me in light of the fact that this has classified information. The defense attorneys are going to have to get clearances they will be able to review the discovery only in a uh, sensitive compartmented information facility at a government building. So that will no doubt slow their review. So all of those things are true. But uh, the idea that this should go after November of 2024 strikes me as just a bridge too far. And uh, I would expect the, the, the normal co- course of things is that a judge sets incremental trial dates. You know, So you start with December and say, let's see if we can make that work. And then as motions come in, 
as things get complicated, if these security clearances should be delayed for some reason, then at that point, at, at that point, you can extend the trial date. But remember that the right to a speedy trial belongs not just to the defendant, but also to the public. And so the more time goes by, the more there is a risk that memories of witnesses will fade, that evidence will become unavailable. Um, and that meanwhile, uh, someone who's been accused of a serious crime is not held accountable. And so I think the judge has a responsibility to try to keep the case on track. I would think a trial in spring or summer of 2024 would be a fair and reasonable amount of time. Uh, but of course, one of the arguments they make is that um, while he's campaigning for president during the whole year of 2024, uh, he'll just be too busy. And I think the too busy argument just doesn't fly. You know, uh, lots of busy people get charged with crimes, doctors, teachers, parents, uh, lots of people who have busy schedules. And, you know, this has to take priority. He's been charged with a serious crime and the process is to go to trial uh, without undue delay because of the public's interest in a speedy trial. Barb, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Um, as you begin to prepare, or you, I'm sure you've been preparing all summer for another year teaching at University of Michigan Law School, one of the best law schools, of course, in the country. I'm uh, actually teaching a class in law school uh, starting in August for the first time ever. And, you know, preparing the syllabus for that is a little daunting for me, having not done it before. But I assume for you, like, there's no greater uh, topic in the history of teaching than there is just Trump. Every day, it must be just show up, talk about Trump. And it's, you know, you teach criminal law, you teach criminal procedure, national security and civil liberties. Trump is all of that every day wrapped into one package, right? Yeah. In fact, I'm teaching a course in national security and civil liberties this fall. And every time, every summer, you know, I think, oh, well, I've taught it last year. It should be just fine. At this point in the years when I like crumple up the paper, you know, and kind of throw it down on the ground. But one thing I've learned, Rich, and some advice I'll give to you is you don't have to etch the syllabus in stone right from the start. And I think I won't because I think things will be evolving and I want to be able to be nimble and adjust to it. So there are certain main topics I, I want to cover and need to cover because I think it's important that the students understand. But in terms of what cases they read or what indictments they read or what motions they read and those kinds of things, I'm going to try to stay nimble because I think a lot's going to happen between now and the end of the semester in December. That's Barbara McQuaid checking in. Make sure you check out the hashtag Sisters in Law podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Barbara, we thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Next up on Legal Faceoff on WGN, Sanford Williams joins us, a special advisor to the chairwoman at the FCC and a professor at the UCLA School of Law here to talk about a massive story regarding college admissions. Sanford, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Professor, so in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling effectively overturning the use of affirmative action in college admissions, we now know that the... Um, policy of legacy admissions that many schools has been challenged. Specifically, the Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a complaint uh, alleging that uh, Harvard's practice of legacy admissions has violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Talk to us a little bit about what that complaint is and, and your thoughts on uh, legacy admissions in general, if you can. Absolutely. Again, thanks for having me. It's a very important topic. So basically, the gist of the complaint is that because the Supreme Court decided that affirmative action should no longer be used as a factor in race and admissions um, based on race, um, that legacy admissions should similarly 
not be part in, part of the process. So because the Supreme Court ruled that race shouldn't be a factor, um, the complaint alleges that legacy there, um, especially because I think roughly 70% of the people who apply for legacy admission at the schools that are affected um, are white. So the thought is if folks can't use their race for affirmative action, then race should not be a proxy used through legacy um, and legacy admissions. Now, don't you to successfully ha- prove a violation of the Civil Rights Act have to prove that not only is the effect of this policy that less uh, minorities get access to legacy admissions, but actually that the intent of that policy is to uh, keep minorities out. That's a difficult, that seems like a difficult and uphill battle to accomplish. But that being said, I think part of the goal um, is the filing of this and bringing this to light. I bet a lot of our listeners didn't even know about legacy admissions and how prevalent it was. And to your point, how that 70% of legacy admittees are usually people who are Caucasian. Right. So part of the goal is to bring light to this issue and perhaps put some political pressure um, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision on universities and, and maybe legislators, legislatures to deal with it. Right. You make great points. Uh, something else that's interesting is just uh, whether the court will hear the, ca- the case, the Supreme Court, if it rises up, because for the case with Harvard and North Carolina, race was definitively involved and required strict scrutiny when race is involved uh, in an issue like this. Um, however, for legacy admissions, race isn't specifically involved, it's implied. So if the court looks at it and says this is not a race case, but a legacy admissions case, they could say, well, we don't require the same strict scrutiny and be more apt to just kind of let it ride as opposed to getting involved as they did with the Harvard and UNC case. Now, Professor, the flip side to legacy admissions is that there is some benefit to it, right? I mean, I think proponents of legacy admissions would uh, uh, assert that um, you know, allowing family members of alums in fosters a sense of community, fosters a sense of family that universities strive for. Um, and also importantly, right, to the lifeblood of any university, it generates checks, right? People who right. are family members and who go to universities for multiple generations are the ones who write the biggest checks that allow, uh, you know, things like college athletics and programs and scholarships to happen. So that might be uh, one of the arguments in favor of legacy admissions. Right. That's exactly right. It's um, interesting. Um, my wife and I both attended the University of Virginia. Um, she went to med school there. I was in law school there. We had two kids at the time. We ended up having three kids in total. All three kids went to University of Virginia. Uh, so they all were legacies, so to speak. Um, we're very grateful they were able to get in. I don't think they got in because they were legacies. I think they were all great. You know, one of my daughters, uh, I think they would have gotten in anyway. Um, but there is something to be said. We do have a connection when we win national championships in basketball or swimming or uh, talk about things going on on HBS campus. Um, there is a connection that brings us together and fosters a commitment to the university that may be stronger than, let's say, someone who hasn't been as engaged and involved. Um, and I appreciate that. And another factor that um, kind of impacts how I look at this is that a lot of my classmates who are often, for me, especially uh, the first in their families to go to college, this is the first time that a lot of folks of color, Black and Latinos, have been able to benefit from legacy admissions. So we were like, wait, we can finally benefit from it now that we're being pulled from from under us. You know, we can't benefit from it. So there are things that accrue to it. The money thing you mentioned is extremely important. Um, Lots of schools um, don't have great endowments. So having legacies and having people, you know, donate and give money is a big thing. Uh, So there are benefits that 
But I think that the caveat to that and the other side to that is that, again, if you can't use affirmative action as a proxy at all, we can't use race as a proxy when race um, has been a factor in this country for years and years and years and it still, it still impedes in part our ability to have an equitable society. Um, how can you um, use legacy and give a benefit to folks based on their legacy? So to that last point, Professor, I mean, you work at UCLA, uh, which is in the California system, of course, and, you know, affirmative action was banned years ago in California and resulted in statistically a a lower percentage of African-Americans and Hispanics going to college. How today, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision and in the wake of this challenge to legacy admissions, do we achieve what perhaps everyone agrees is a laudable goal, which is to have universities that have diversity, not only in uh, opinions, but in races, genders, um, all sorts of ways, because that does foster a more understanding and, you know, uh, 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 a community that thrives in the way we want it to. How do you accomplish that in the w- in, in the wake of what's happened over the last week or two? Exactly. That's a great point. So I did my research. Um, in 1996, when Prop 209 passed, the year previous to that, 7% of the students at UCLA were, were Black. Um, 10 years later, in the fall of 2006, only 2% were. So it went from seven to two percent. In fact, it took up to about this past year, 2022-23 school year, where the number of black students um, is around close to six percent, close to where it was back in 1996 when Prop 209 came about. So there was a precipitous decline in the number of students and it's slowly gradually building up. So your question is the, is the right one. Um, how do you address this? Then what California has done, a lot of schools have done, is try to take a holistic approach to look at all factors that students have, um, the type of environment you live in, the type of schools you attended, uh, the type of uh, obstacles you overcome, and try and look at holistically to try to glean what students have gone through to obtain a class which is diverse, uh, which is, as you alluded to, best for all folks. Um, so I think that the only way to address this and to bring us to a place where we're in a more equitable, place is to put great minds together and think about what factors you can look at in total that will give you a class that's more diverse. Uh, But it's not going to be easy, uh, especially because the problem is not just the folks who are applying, but the problem started earlier. If you look around our nation, K through 12, schools don't have equitable resources. I was on the school board for 12 years in Manassas, Virginia, and I was in a great school system, but we were next door to Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, which has one of the richest counties, which is one of the richest counties in the country, and they have more resources than we have. So because of that, their students simply had access to more things than we did, even though we did an awesome job and our teachers were awesome and all that. Um, so if we don't rectify the problem at the K-12 level, we're not going to be able to get to a point where we have a society where everyone has a chance um, to reach their full potential. Professor, uh, speaking of your Wahoo offspring, I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of them. I also met your other daughter, but uh, Nia CC, we've got to give a shout out to her latest single. She's an incredibly talented musician. Uh, her latest single is Grown, which we found on her Instagram page. Yes. It's uh, Nia CC13, incredible uh, Instagram page, uh, incredible musician. We encourage all of our listeners to check her out. And also, former Legal Face-Off guest. She appeared on our show yes. Uh, yes. a few months ago and did a great job. Yes. We have to get the entire family on. We've got hey, her- definitely do that. Her, her song, My Body, I believe, is out today. She went to perform last night with Hollywood, and I went with her, and she's Awesome. I'm, I'm biased. I think all my kids are awesome, but uh, I love the fact they're all compassionate, great kids, and very thankful um, that who they are. And that they all went to UVA as well. That was pretty cool for all of us. 
Well, Sanford, we, we certainly hope you'll join us again. That was really, really great stuff. Super informative. Sanford Williams, special advisor to the chairwoman at the FCC and a professor at UCLA, UCLA excuse me, School of Law. Thanks again for joining us today on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Our last stop before the legal grab bag segment, and it's a reunion of Northern Illinois graduates. Donna Kelly is an attorney. She's also an author, a poet. She's here to talk about the Cheney Manning series that she wrote. Donna, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, it's good to see you after it only took us 30 years to get back together after uh, being in DeKalb, but we're really interested in uh, the Cheney Manning series. It's a collection of suspense novels featuring a public defender turned amateur sleuth who investigates mysteries in the Northern Illinois area. Oddly enough, you're a former public defender in the Northern Illinois area. So the question is, how much of this series is based on your own experiences? That's really an excellent question, Rich. I obviously bring my own personal life view of things, my own personal life experiences into my art, into my writing, uh, just as any author would. But the books are purely fictional. People who know me when they read the Cheney Manning series obviously identify the character with me and say, Donna, she's a lot like you. Uh, but there are also distinct differences between myself and the main character. And all the settings uh, that are involved in the book, the situations, the situations are, are purely fictional. But the life perspective that I have, my experiences in the trial courtroom, uh, both having been a public defender and then later being a prosecutor, I bring that real world experience, real life experience into the books, which I believe makes some um, compelling novels for people who have an interest in the criminal justice uh, field. So, Donna, what made you decide to start writing these books? So, Christina, I, I majored in English creative writing in undergrad, and a goal of mine was always to be a writer. I've always written since I was very young. I started writing poetry when I was in grade school and junior high and always wanted to write novels as I, as I got older. And at some point in 2003, 
I decided to write Cap Eyes, which is the first book in the series. And what inspired me to write it was, again, kind of those those real world experiences that I was having as a public defender. And I wanted to create a strong woman attorney hero who had this experience as being a public defender and bring kind of her view of the courtroom into these books. So her experiences uh, of being Cheney Manning's experiences of having compassion for her clients, of defending the underdog, of making sure that that her clients' constitutional rights are afforded, and the long hours worked, uh, the the many hours worked, and the low pay of being a public defender. Those kind of experiences that I had had uh, really came into uh, this character and wanting to create this character uh, and bring that kind of fresh look uh, at a character uh, into a into a novel. So I think she's a unique character, and I think that uh, the the experiences that she has uh, are are though very realistic to people that either whether they're a prosecutor, defense attorney, or judge. Anybody who's worked in criminal law, I think, will if they read the books would recognize that uh, this is who's writing them has real world experience as a prosecutor and as a public defender. Uh, I think our law school uh, taught us really well on how to become an effective legal communicator and particularly a legal writer. I was a legal writer uh, TA back in the day, and I think that really prepared me well. But as Tina and I, you know, Tina and I often lament at the sorry state of legal writing sometimes these days. Uh, I see some really poor writing. I see some decent writing. But do you think uh, being a, a poet and a fiction writer has made you a better legal writer or vice versa? Has your legal writing experience made you a better author and poet? Another really good question. Uh, basically, I think they both complement one another. So the the foundation that I had having majored in creative writing, English creative writing in undergrad, and having always had an interest in writing and been having been a prolific writer through high school and college, served as a foundation to help me uh, become a, a writer, a lawyer who could write very well. And so I take a lot of, a lot of pride in my legal writing, uh, in the memos I filed over the years, in my motions I filed over the years, and in my appellate briefs that I filed over the years. I worked as an assistant appellate defender for the Office of the State Appellate Defender in the 3rd Judicial District for seven years in my career. And that basis, that foundation of having been a writer before I took that job really helped me be able to write persuasive uh, appellate briefs. And then on the flip side of it, having all that experience of writing and editing and proofreading my own work as an attorney certainly complements my ability to write novels uh, and and to proofread my novels and to edit my novels uh, because I have so many years of having done uh, legal writing. So I think they both kind of complement one another. So Don, I'm sure our listeners want to know, how do you find the time to write books with such a busy career as the law? So uh, that that's a great question. And one of the things when I uh, go and do some public speaking to uh, law school classes and undergrad classes, I talk about that when I was in undergrad, I had a professor, and I'm going to kind of 
shorten this this story down. Uh, but I basically had a professor who tried to dissuade me from attending law school, and he was my fiction writing uh, workshop professor. And he he basically said to me that what will happen in your life is that you'll have this career as a lawyer, and you'll go through your life as an attorney, and you'll look back. And you'll regret that you weren't writing, that you weren't writing novels, that you weren't producing novels, and that you you wasted it essentially on on the practice of law. And I still, regardless of his warning, went to, to law school and have enjoyed my career as an attorney. Uh, and during the time that I practiced law uh, as an attorney, I would make myself at night and on weekends write. I would use my free time to write. I was able to write two novels during the years that, that I was practicing. Uh, even though I was practicing many hours during the day, I had forced myself to take the time at night or on weekends to write. But I will say that uh, in the past couple of years, I took time off from the practice of law. I've only recently gone back in the past few months. But during the past two years where I took that time off from the practice of law, I devoted it solely to creative writing and was able to write four full-length novels in that period of time. Um, so can you do it all? It's tough to do it all, to practice law and then shift to the creative mode and make time to write. You can do it, but you're not going to have the time to write as much as you would if you're devoting it full-time to creative writing. I will say, though, I do not regret becoming a lawyer. Uh, and this is something, again, I, I, I talk to students about because the career experience that I have, I couldn't have written this series, the Cheney Manning series. I couldn't have written it without having had the experience of having been a public defender, of having been a prosecutor. Those real life experiences of being in a courtroom and interacting with defendants and prosecutors and and probation officers and police officers, it's enriched my writing. So I wouldn't give that up for anything. Oh, last question here on Legal Face Off. You know, we're all very excited. No one more than Kevin Wells about the big Barbie movie opening this weekend. That's an example of a, you know, famous female uh, fictional protagonist, uh, you know, being uh, that IP being translated into the movies. Who do you see on your dream list of actresses who would play Cheney Manning in the inevitable movie version of your excellent series? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Cheney Manning, in, in my mind, I would picture uh, maybe Emma Stone playing her, uh, perhaps. Uh, Miley Cyrus, I think, I think she's underrated as an actress. I think she's an enormous talent, and I think she could play a serious role. Manny is a very, very serious character. Uh, she doesn't have the best sense of humor at times. Uh, she has kind of a subtle sense of humor, sarcasm. But I see uh, somebody who you you could take as an actress uh, that may have more have done more comedy roles and have them portray this serious character. I'd like to see something like that. I'm going to see the Barbie oh. movie in IMAX, Rich. I don't know about you. Of course you are. I dressed, dressed, <laughs> up, dressed up inevitably in your best Barbie, you know, character gear of some kind. So where are you guys headed after the show to catch up? You going to Fatties? You going to Molly's? You going to Pizza Bros? Nah, you know we're gonna head up the uh, we're gonna hit the Crystal Pistol first. Then we're, <laughs> then we're gonna. Are go. we off now? We're off air. No, we're still on air. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we roll when we're on air. Unfortunately, the Crystal Pistol hasn't been around for about twenty five years, but I'd I'd go there. 
I'm a big uh, I'm a big DeKalb guy. My whole family went there too. Fun spot. Oh, okay, thank great. you so much for uh, hopping thank in you. and joining thank us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. You guys have a great day and thank you again. It was nice to meet you all. And Rich, wonderful to see you again after all these years. Hope no, we can reconnect again. Catch up for sure. Donna Kelly, she's an attorney, author, and poet. Talking about her Cheney Manning series. You can find that online to purchase. Donna, again, thank you so much. Thank you. It's time for the legal grab bag segment here on Legal Faceoff on WGN. We'll go around the horn covering a series of legal stories from the past couple of weeks. Joining us is Drew Moses of Sodoro Law Group and Christy Dosh with Sports Business. Guys, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Let's start with our uh, story about Donald Trump seeking a delay in his classified documents trial. Thanks, Kevin. So as we discussed earlier in the show, former President Donald Trump is asking a judge to delay setting a trial date in his classified documents case, which currently may be tried as soon as December, saying with the looming 2024 presidential race, it's just not fair to push the timing of it so quickly. In a late uh, filing on Monday, Trump attorneys mentioned that the sheer volume of documents that must be reviewed in the case Um, is just too many for purposes of having such a quick trial date, given that there's going to be a lot of effort needing to be put in in terms of dealing with some of these classified materials, which include secrets about defense and weapons capabilities of both the U.S. government as well as its allies. In addition to mentioning the fact that Trump is the first former president to face federal charges from a government he once led. There's also going to be the challenge of selecting a jury during the 2024 presidential race and that it's not likely to be fair to Trump. They're also saying that a trial during this time would likely impact the outcome of the election and his ability to get a fair trial. It looks like Trump's team is going to be filing, in addition to what they filed earlier this week, a motion to dismiss the charges, as well as legal challenges to the special counsel's authority and challenges to the way in which the documents themselves have been classified and whether they've been properly classified. In other news, last week, a Washington, D.C.-based Bar Discipline Committee concluded that Rudy Giuliani who obviously everybody knows is very much tied to former President Trump, claiming that he should be disbarred for his efforts to derail the 2020 presidential election. That case centered around his efforts and his role in undermining the results of the 2020 election in Pennsylvania, where he took a leading role in litigating the matter in federal court. This is all in connection with Giuliani's Giuliani's claim of massive election fraud without any evidence. And this is really what the disciplinary council had focused on, Rich, was that there really wasn't any merit, at least in their mind, as to what Giuliani was claiming and had also concluded that he had violated the ethics rules in the process. This panel deliberated for months, held a week of hearings with testimony from Giuliani, as well as several of his close associates as well as Trump. And the next step here is Giuliani has said he plans to appeal the findings on his ultimate disbarment. And 
it will be decided by the D.C. Court of Appeals. So, Rich, we were fully expecting all of this. It's going to be interesting to see how all of this continues to play out against the backdrop of all the legal activity that Trump has beyond this particular 37 count indictment. Well, Giuliani's license has already been affected in New York. Correct. Uh, where he was the, of course, former U.S. attorney and mayor. Um, let me take it that point for, I mean, practically who cares, right? Giuliani is never going to be, whoever in the history of time is going to hire Rudy Giuliani to be their lawyer for anything, right? So really who cares? <laughs> of course he should be disbarred. I mean, like any attorney who would go before a, a court of law and outright lie and, you know, uh, you know, lie about a very important thing, of course he should be disbarred. So that's like easy. In terms of Trump's motion, you know, it's interesting, as we talked about earlier with Barbara Quaid, um, you know, the real reason he wants to delay this is not because he's busy. Of course he's busy. He's a criminal. Like any criminal is going to be busy. Anyone accused of a crime is going to be busy, whether you believe them or not. That's not a, that's not a reason to continue the trial. The real reason is because he hopes that he'll be elected president. And then guess what? He'll pardon himself. Um, so, you know, I think the judge should maintain the fast track. The defense in this case asked for a you know quick trial date. December is a little aggressive. I can't imagine they're going to be ready to go in December, but let's get this done. Let's move forward. It's a serious charge. He should get his day in court and uh, it shouldn't be delayed because he's busy. I don't know. Christy, what do you think? Oh, well, I think Trump's being sued in like four or five other places, right? So he probably needs Giuliani to keep his license because he's going to have to have an enormous legal team to defend against all those different cases in all those different places. But, you know, I mean, not unusual for a defendant to want more time. I mean, that's what you do. You try to delay, 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 delay. And obviously they want to delay so that it doesn't impact the election and he can, uh, in his hopes, get back in the White House. So no surprises at all. You and I ask for continuances all the time, and sometimes that results in the case being settled, right? Uh, the longer the case lingers on, the more it's continued. That frequently results in settlement. Do you think there's any scenario where Trump, even though he said that he will never settle this case, do you think that as these charges become a little more serious and possible jail time uh, is on the horizon, do you think he'll he's doing this as a means to come up with some kind of deal? Sure. I, I think there's a resolution here, and it's a good it's a good tack to to delay, right? Uh, he certainly has the resources to have lawyers all over the place and they can probably get through the discovery uh, and the documents and deal with all that in six months. But uh, realistically, he's the first you know, former president to be you know, federally indicted and, and dealing with this. So I think I think that logistically it's a nightmare um, for for everybody involved. And I think that uh, resolution could certainly be on the table, despite what what he claims. So. Whose cocaine was it at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Secret Service found some cocaine in the White House a couple of weeks ago. Still, the investigation is underway. What could this lead to? Well, if you believe, again, if you believe Trump, uh, that was Joe Biden, not even Hunter Biden's cocaine, but it was Joe Biden's cocaine. And uh, Joe Biden uh, put together this whole hoax in a coke in coke infused, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy to get Trump. Um, who knows whose coke it is? And they, they should investigate, of course. The Secret Service is investigating. You know, of course, the uh, right wing is alleging that this is Hunter Biden's coke. Hunter Biden is an admitted uh, cocaine abuser and alcoholic. Uh, you know, there are many uh, allegations and actual investigations going on with Hunter, Hunter Biden. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, thousands of people are coming to the White House every day. They undergo, of course, strict scrutiny. But who knows how it could have ended up in there? I don't think I think it's a complete waste of time to devote a lot of our 
taxpayer money on investigating it, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'll lead to something, but um, what's a little coke in, in the White House, Tina? Well, I agree with you, Rich, that I just don't think in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's all that important, um, especially given everyone who's looking into it. I think we're supposed to be hearing pretty quickly, maybe as soon as tomorrow, the results of the investigation from the Secret Service. So it's going to be interesting to see what they say. But the whole notion that, you know, yes, Hunter Biden has a lot of problems, but the whole notion that this is his cocaine against the backdrop of everybody knowing his problems is just a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you could. I know famously from this is Spinal Tap, you can't dust for vomit. I'm not sure if you get dust for Coke. I don't know. Anyone know the answer to that? Here, here's what concerns me is that it's taking so long to figure it out because I have a running security camera outside of my house and my next door neighbor had some vandalism a couple of years ago. And I figured out who did it on the camera pretty quickly. I'm guessing the White House has cameras and could figure this out in pretty short order. Yeah, maybe they've never heard of uh, a ring camera, Drew. Yeah, it should be as simple as checking the ring. You would think so. They can investigate it all they want. And they probably should. It was in a public area, I think. So maybe somebody brought it in. Maybe it was hunters. I guess they could drug test all their employees uh, up the White House and the White House staff. Um, but again, it's just uh, over sensationalized in the media. They should do their investigation, report back, and we should focus on things that maybe uh, have some substance abuse. Yeah, that's not what you did there. Well, speaking of dust that's not going to settle anytime soon over at Northwestern University, head coach Pat Fitzgerald, their football program now without a job after he was initially suspended for two weeks. Could be a lawsuit on the horizon coming from him now is what we're hearing. Yeah, Kevin. So this was all the rage in terms of the news on Monday when news broke that Pat Fitzgerald. In your backyard, right in your backyard. Yeah, right in my backyard. And actually, I've got family that works at Northwestern. So it's hitting really close to home. Um, So after the hazing incident that has come to light over the past few days and his suspension late last week, The president of Northwestern pivoted on Monday to making that a firing. All of this culminated from an investigation that was led by law firm Aaron Fox Schiff into allegations that had initially been made by a former Northwestern football player. The school had said the investigation, while it didn't find sufficient evidence linking Fitzgerald and the coaching staff to the hazing, they said that there were significant opportunities to find out about it. Um, The Daily Northwestern over the weekend published a story detailing with a lot of specificity some of these allegations, which led to school president Michael Schill talking to a lot of people over the weekend, including former students, as well as people with knowledge of the matter. President Schill then wrote an open letter talking about everything he had done and the steps that he had taken. And he had said that after much reconsideration and these conversations that he had decided to fire Fitzgerald rather than to suspend him. When you take a look at what what the nature is of these allegations, much too much for us to go into right now. But 
Some of them were very detailed involving um, hazing by older players that were called the Shrek gang that were hazing younger players that were purportedly making mistakes in practice. There were allegations that Fitzgerald was in the middle of some of these um, sort of signs that were being made about putting people on the Shrek list um, to be hazed in a horrible way. According to the allegations, there were sexual um, hazing activities that were going on. And apparently there were dozens of people that were interviewed through the process. Fitzgerald responded saying he was surprised. He thought that he had reached a settlement um, with the university and that it was going to be a suspension. He's lawyered up. He's hired veteran trial attorney Dan Webb, who we've talked about many times on this show. Um, Most recently, Dan Webb represented Fox News in the Dominion litigation. He's represented Boeing as well as the Jesse. And he was um, he tried the case against Jesse Smollett, which we covered extensively on this show. The claim, if there is one by Fitzgerald, would be breach of contract and potentially defamation. Um, I think that this is one case, Rich, where to pursue this, particularly on the defamation front, got to be really careful because as we've talked about many times on this show, proving defamation, you have to really sort of open the cloak in terms of going into gory detail about what was said And those sorts of things, as we've seen in the past, can really backfire if you make those types of claims. Yeah, you know, Dan Webb, again, one of the most famous lawyers in the country, has represented, you know, everyone from George Ryan, former Illinois governor who was in jail, Dan Rostenkowski, um, Jesse Jackson Jr., former mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick. I think I think uh, Fitzgerald was in the first year of what, a fifty six million dollar contract. He might go through that entire contract in a couple of uh, months with Dan Webb. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Fitzgerald is, is alleging that he was wrongfully terminated again, to your point, And we want to bring Christy in on this because this is your, your wheelhouse, but you better be damn sure that, uh, he wasn't aware of this. And I think all of the early, uh, information points to the fact that he was at least aware of it and did very little, if not nothing to put a stop to it. If not, was encouraging it. There's some reports already that he was encouraging this behavior. And by the way, the liability civilly and criminally doesn't stop at Fitzgerald. If the if the school, if the athletic department, if the administration thinks that this is the end, they got another thing coming. This is going to run very, very deep. We've seen similar scandals, not to this degree, but Michigan State, some other universities. This is going to run deep, right? I mean, the, the baseball program is in jeopardy. Their coach is about to be fired for similar allegations, including years of bullying. Um, the fact that the this was going on for so long And the athletic department, the university is going to turn a blind eye and throw out these coaches as scapegoats. It's not going to end there. There's a lot of money to be uh, that will be paid before this case is over. Christy, what are your thoughts on on this developing story? I fully support the decision to fire him and to have zero tolerance for this. I mean, we saw what happened at Penn State with Sandusky and what happened at Michigan with Larry Nassar. Those were things that had been going on for years and years and years and years, where now we know that complaints or at least rumors had had been going around for a very long time and no one bothered to look into them. It's inconceivable to me that at least someone on the coaching staff wasn't aware of it. And if you as the head coach are employed 
employing assistant coaches who don't come to you immediately when they get wind of this sort of activity, you know, your whole organization is a mess and you're not controlling the folks that work with you and you're not creating a healthy environment for these young men that you've been entrusted with. So I I fully support firing him. No tolerance for that. He either knew or he should have known. Yeah, there's no question, Drew, like, you know, uh, the head coach, especially at a big program like Northwestern, they're aware of everything, you know, and and there's no way that Fitzgerald didn't know about it and could have ended it in about three seconds. You know what he does? One day walks into the locker room, says, I've heard this is going on. It ends today or you're gone. You're out. You're out, out of the program. That's it. That could have put an end to it. But that that wasn't done, apparently. Yeah, it's uh, it's really poor judgment and and, and possibly inaction or you know or action by by Pat Fitzgerald, and it, the the thing is with with college football coaches particularly, you have to be a good football coach and you also have to be a good CEO of an enterprise, right? And and a CEO of an enterprise is tasked with knowing what is going on within the corners of 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 their you know company and their enterprise and. And here it's it looks like it's rushed because it was two weeks suspension and over the weekend and then he was fired. I don't think that's the case. I think Northwestern did their homework. I think that uh, they dotted their I's and crossed their T's. And truthfully, Pat Fitzgerald's owed something like forty two million dollars. So he will undoubtedly sue or pursue that. Um, so we'll see how it how it shakes out. But uh, I think that Pat Fitzgerald will end up in the you know Canadian Football League and and this might be it for him. Don't knock the CFL. Uh, Christy, one more question before we move on, because this is, again, your wheelhouse, the business of college sports. As Tina knows, because this is literally her neighborhood, you know, uh, Northwestern was uh, starting to break ground and already broke ground on a massive renovation of Ryan Field up there in Evanston. This was uh, going to be a uh, a multi, uh, a complex with not just sports, but performances and, you know, led to a lot of controversy in the neighborhood as people didn't want that kind of development. Yesterday, some uh, the faculty at Northwestern signed a letter saying this should stop until this investigation uh, is over, until we really know the depth of this problem. What effect do you think that'll have on the business of college sports in this case? Obviously, that kind of development would generate millions, if not billions of dollars for the program. Yeah, and a lot of the fundraising for that building, I'm sure, is already done. But I was just at a conference recently where folks who work in athletic facilities on campuses were talking about how difficult it is now to raise money for facilities because donors want to spend money on name, image, and likeness for student-athletes. They want to help student-athletes earn money on their personal brand. And so they're donating less to things like facilities. You know, I I think a scandal like this really impacts your ability to finish that building because building costs are going up. So they probably still needed to do some fundraising on that. And it just comes across as really tone deaf when you are putting money into a facility like that and you've got this sort of problem on your hands. And I have to tell you, as an an Evanston resident and as a Northwestern alum, um, there's been so much controversy. I mean, I see it every day, just taking a walk, people having signs on their lawns about protesting the stadium. And so I just think that this conversation is going to get all the more heated on this for every reason that you mentioned, Christy, and and then some. Certainly a ton of questions still to be answered up in Evanston about that program and what's going to happen next with Pat Fitzgerald. Elsewhere, though, in the sports world, what is going on with Britney Spears and the number one overall NBA draft pick, Victor Wembenyama? We all have seen the slap, the videos out there to see but what is going on with this story? What's the next part, Rich? You know, movies about, you know, Elvis and Nixon and 
Frost Nixon. I, I think in 20 years we'll see a movie version of When Wemby Met Britney in Vegas. Um, yeah, they were going into Catch. I've been to Catch. Very hard, to, really hard to get into Catch unless you're a uh, pop star or a, a seven foot four. Is it uh, number one pick? But uh, yeah, uh, allegedly Wemby's security guard backhanded Britney as she grabbed Wemby, who is of course the number one pick, uh, soon to be NBA star. Played a couple of. Uh, um, summer league games, one good, one bad before they shut him down. Brittany grabbed uh, Wemby and, and the security guard slapped her. There's been some evidence that that's not exactly true. There's some video um, and the police in Vegas said they're not charging the security guard. Brittany, no, no, you know, no, uh, not at all shy with publicity has, I think, taken the ball and run with this one. Maybe not coincidentally, Tina. She just came out with a book, uh, announced a book yesterday, um, and has released multiple TikTok videos since then of her dancing topless. But, you know, the fact that the police are not pursuing it, I guess, tells you a lot. Doesn't mean there might not be some civil liability. Normally, if the soon to be, you know, multi millionaire NBA player's agent, in this case, a security guard, slaps someone, Inevitably, the victim would sue for a lot of money. Would Britney Spears do that? Probably not. Maybe she'll donate it to charity, but maybe nothing will come of it. Who knows? You know, it's interesting, Rich. I agree with you that there seem to be differing accounts about what exactly happened. I mean, she posted on her Instagram account about how she was hit in the face so hard that her glasses went flying off, et cetera, et cetera. But we're also in the context of everything Britney's been through with respect to her, her father and her career and all the drama. If I were Brittany, unless I was seriously hurt, I would probably just let this one go and move on. Yeah, probably so. Christy, do you have, uh, are you team Brittany or team Wemby? And by the way, Wemby said that he, of course, regrets the incident and, you know, he didn't know who it was. And when there's, you know, fans rushing up to you, that's kind of what security's job is not to slap someone, but to keep them away from, from the star. But team Wemby or team, uh, team Brittany? Oh, Brittany. I think Brittany thrives on the drama. She and I are about the same age. We're also about the same height. You know, I saw the video. It looks like she barely tapped him on the shoulder. She can barely even reach his shoulder. The idea that she grabbed him is ridiculous. Um, but I think she thrives on the drama and staying in the news cycle. And she's not all that relevant from a music point of view. So the only news has been about the ways in which her father financially take, takes advantage of her and has sort of controlled her life. So this gave her you know, something new to keep her in the news cycle. And certainly that video can be found on Twitter. I don't know. I'm sure it's on threads now too. And that's our next topic is how many of you signed up for threads so far? I'm assuming everybody's on Twitter, but who's got threads? Everybody? Not yet. Almost. Not yet. I'm on. Well, I just I jumped signed right up on for it. it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a cool platform just launched. And, but now Twitter thinks that they might have a case because the two are very alike. Well, Elon Musk, I'll jump on this one. Elon Musk's attorney in the wake of uh, this announcement by Zuckerberg last week of this competitor to Twitter said that uh, uh, he, this is a what, systematic, willful, unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade sequence and other IP. Uh, Zuckerberg came back and said that, in fact, none of the former Twitter employees that are now meta employees, there are many of them, as you would expect in this industry, right, Tina? But there are many of those employees, but he, they say none of them worked on this project. Um, you know, listen, uh, there, there's been many lawsuits in this space, in the 
IT, IP space, social media, IP space. There's only so many products out there, right? Inevitably, because of the competition level, when the, when when one comes up with a new product, there's going to be another variation. You know, whether that uh, rises to the level of intellectual property theft, those are hard cases to prove. Uh, it helps when there's a smoking gun, of course, as there as there has been in other litigation in the space. In this case, there doesn't appear yet to be one, and we don't even know if this lawsuit. Uh, will be filed. You know, it, it's not uncommon to threaten litigation in an effort to maybe shut down. This is not going to be shut down. Obviously, this is one of the biggest announcements in the space ever. So, Drew, are you on threads yet? And uh, do you think there's any merit to an allegation that there's some intellectual property theft going on here? You know, I'm not on threads. Uh, I have not even really looked at getting threads. Uh, I have a Twitter that might be dormant. Um, and there could be something here. I think Elon came in and cleaned house and, and terminated a bunch of people when he bought when he bought Twitter. Um, and I always think that Twitter and Instagram and all of that is just akin to a bulletin board anyway. It's a new way of doing things, but the the thought process of sharing your thoughts, um, yeah, I don't think that that's necessarily novel. Uh, Twitter's owned the the 140 character or less space, uh, but uh, Zuckerberg pivoting a little bit and. Uh, Trying to pull Meta up out of the uh, the gutter, maybe getting back to the real world and not Meta, I think is is maybe a positive move uh, for uh, for Meta stock. Yeah, Christy. I mean, again, you have to prove more than the hiring former employees and the fact that Facebook created a somewhat similar product. So I don't really think, again, absent some additional evidence, some whistleblower, some smoking gun, that there's much to this allegation. Yeah, I'm on threads. I, I jumped on it because I work a lot with student athletes in the NIL space and I want to be on the platforms they're on so that I understand what they're asking me questions about. So I jumped right on it. And I've been on a lot of the other platforms that came online that were supposed to be alternatives to Twitter after Elon took over. And this does look the most like Twitter. Um, that's not a trade secret. Obviously, we all know what Twitter looks like. Uh, and it does have some key differences and it integrates with Instagram in some interesting ways. Like I think it has the ability to be a real competitor to Twitter. And that's why Elon's so upset about it. He hasn't gone after any of the other platforms that have popped up. So I think he's genuinely concerned because it's been so successful so quickly. Kevin, maybe uh, Elon and Zuck will uh, resolve this in the cage match that they mentioned. You got to think that that's part of the reason for this, right? Maybe a little bit of a extra, extra motivation when they get in there. I got Elon on that just for the, just for the, like, Elon will, will stop at nothing, right? You would imagine it. <laughs> he, he doesn't buy by any of the ground rules. Here at a kitchen sink into Twitter. I mean, you gotta love it. I'll certainly be buying it. I'm looking forward to that fight uh, when it, when it does happen. Uh, Northwestern's not the only school that's going to be looking for a new coach this season. West Virginia is going to need a new basketball coach. Bob Huggins resigned or did he resign? It's the Costanza defense, right? You remember when Costanza quit and then showed up again Monday? What do you mean I quit? I didn't quit. That's the Huggins move. Except, you know, Costanza wasn't a homophobic, racist, um, uh, drunk, I guess. Uh, that, that, that's the allegation with the Huggins case. I mean, uh, back a few months ago, uh, Huggins was disciplined for some comments that he made that were anti-Catholic, homophobic. Uh, this is back in May. Uh, he made remarks on a Cincinnati radio station. There was lots of calls by West Virginia to fire 
Bob Huggins back then. Uh, five weeks later, he lost his job when he was pulled over. And I think the uh, he, he blew like three times over the uh, legal limit. There was a garbage bag full of beer cans in the back. He failed his field sobriety test. And uh, I think the Christy, the the discussion at that point, they, they talked about a resignation, mutual separation, whatever the discussion was. Now, Tina, several weeks later, Bob Huggins is saying, no, I didn't resign. Not only did I not re- resign. What do you mean resign? Not only did I not resign, uh, I want to come back to work. And if you don't give me my job back, I'm going to sue you, West Virginia. It's just unbelievable to me. But, you know, we're talking about this case in the context of other coaches who allegedly have behaved very badly to the point where they move from being suspended to being terminated. And now this is all that everybody's talking about, at least in the sports world. So, Rich, I mean, I think that my guess is that he knows that it's probably going to be very difficult for him to get hired anywhere else. And so this is sort of his last ditch effort to try to get money because he probably knows that given the backdrop that we've been talking about on this show with this sort of thing, coaches behaving badly over the last few months in particular, that his career may be over. So if he doesn't undo this in his Costanza-like fashion, then he's probably done. I mean, Christy, there's just no shame. All you got to say is there's just no shame anymore, right? I mean, the guy blew up 0.210. He's the head basketball coach. He's one of the winningest most co- winningest co- uh, coaches in, in college basketball history. And now he says, I didn't really resign. Give me my money. Give me my job back. After you hired another guy, you elevated one of my assistants. I think he's making it worse. Like, I think no one really paid that much attention when he got the DUI and he resigned. Like, that story would have blown over in a few days. He could come back later, you know, play on people's sympathy that he's got this problem with alcoholism and he's got treatment. Like, I think there's a comeback. I mean, there are plenty of other folks in sports who have come back from this or worse. Instead, he's like prolonging the news cycle with it by saying that he didn't resign when apparently he met with players. There's written evidence that he resigned. So I think he's making it worse for himself, but it sounds like he has a real problem with alcohol and that causes you to make dumb decisions. And I think that's what he's doing. Yeah. Drew, the general counsel of the university, you know, came back with a very lengthy and detailed response to this alleged, uh, Unresignation or non-resignation? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Bob Huggins, I think, just tried to storm back into West Virginia and, and revoke his resignation and take his job back. Uh, you know, that's coming from the guy that when he was pulled over, he didn't know he was in Pittsburgh when asked. And now he doesn't know if he resigned or not. To me, uh, it would seem pretty clear. And I and I have to think that the, the university and the general counsel is bashing their heads into the wall with the frustration of stop and start and start and stop and this story and that story. And, you know, they, they already had a lot of attrition, I think, from their players. Uh, They've already kind of weathered that storm. They're on the other side of it. And then he's throwing them right back into it. Drew Moses and Christy Doss joining us here on the legal grab bag segment here on legal face off one last stop before we get on out of here. Lady Gaga She's keeping 500K in her pocket over her stolen dog case because why? Uh, Well, Kevin, you can't make this stuff up. And keeping with some of the crazy stories we talk about here on Legal Face Off, 
This Lady Gaga story is definitely among among them. So earlier this week, Lady Gaga won dismissal of the lawsuit that someone else filed against her. It was a woman who claimed that she was deprived of the half million dollar award that um, reward that Lady Gaga offered to people if they would return her stolen dogs to her. Um, The saga started back in 2021 when we actually reported here on Legal Faceoff that Lady Gaga's two French bulldogs were stolen from her dog walker at gunpoint, and he ended up actually being shot during the holdup. Lady Gaga quickly offered the half million dollar reward and said, no questions asked. As long as you return my dogs to me, I'll give you half a million dollars. So along comes the plaintiff, Jennifer McBride who two days later returns the dogs to Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, after finding out that this woman had something to do with the theft, um, decides not to pay the reward. And Jennifer McBride brings the lawsuit. And she actually had the nerve rich not only to seek half a million dollars, which was the reward, but to also demand triple damages. What's really interesting is that she she must have overlooked that the fingers were all pointing in her direction as being part of um, a conspiracy in the kidnapping, or should I say dog napping. And she was actually charged with being an accessory to the crime after the fact. Her lawyer has gone on record to say that McBride had nothing to do with the dog napping, but apparently McBride knew the men involved in the shooting of the dog walker, and she was allegedly dating the father of one of the men who was actually convicted and being responsible for the shooting. Um, In any event, Rich, I mean, this is one of the more ridiculous stories in a sea of many ridiculous stories that we handle and discuss here on Legal Face Off. Thankfully, the judge did the right thing. You know, we say always that you can sue anyone for anything in this country. Uh, Thankfully, it didn't make it past the early stages. But, yeah, this is the Bob Huggins of stolen dog stories. Drew, I mean, have you no shame? It is. You know, I'm I think it's the right outcome. Uh, I'm a little disappointed it's gone, though. I've really enjoyed watching that saga play out, uh, you know, I want to talk about problems I will never have professional dog walker, $500,000 rewards, things <laughs> like that. It's just been really interesting. Uh, and I'm sad to see that story go away, but I think it's the right outcome. All right, Christy, we'll start with you. You know, the inevitable roundtable question, we're going to go around the horn and ask you your favorite Lady Gaga song of all time. Christy, you're on the hot seat. Tell us and you get you get the fortunate spot of going first, and no one could duplicate your answer. So you could go with an obvious one if you'd like, or go with a deep cut for Lady Gaga. But go ahead. You know, yeah. poker face is hard to beat. In fact, I just was re-watching Gossip Girl, which I'm sure says a lot about me. And she's in an episode of Gossip Girl singing poker face. So I think that's why it's stuck in my head right now. <laughs> Good call right there. It's a classic. Drew Moses' favorite Gaga song, Go. Uh, I think the first Gaga song I heard might be my favorite, Just Dance in like 09, maybe. Ah, oh, stole my answer. <laughs> well, sweating out. This is your era, man. Come on. You came of age in the Gaga era. Hmm. It's a good one. Just Dance to go in. Alejandro's another good one. I'll go with that one. Uh, Just Dance is on at all the weddings. So is Alejandro. It's a good one. It's, uh, it's wedding season. I've already been to a few where Lady Gaga's been uh, blasting through the speakers. 
can almost see Google reflected in your eyeglasses, by the way. Tina Martini, favorite Gaga song. You got a lot. You don't have to stretch on this one. I so I've seen her in concert and I love watching her do bad romance. It's such a great, I mean, she's so great. I mean, she's just great in concert, but I really love that song. Wow. So that's a great one. I love many of them and I'm, I get to go last. I get to pick many. I, I love the new one in Top Gun, right? That's a great, I think that's like a classic old school, like end of credits movie song that just hits. Um, I love, speaking of uh, Gossip Girl, I love Glee. I'm a big Glee fan. And uh, they did a great version of Marry the Night. Adam Lambert did a great one on, on, on Glee. But my favorite is, uh, is Shallow off uh, A Star is Born, right? You can't go wrong with Shallow. Great karaoke song. You got to have the chops, though, to go with uh, Shallow at like 2 a.m. in a karaoke bar. I don't have those skills, but I'll do it nonetheless. But <laughs> great one. Big, big fan of A Star is Born. Tina, do you like that movie? I haven't seen it. What? Oh, I so know. good. <laughs> I haven't seen it either. Oh, it's the greatest movie. It's really good. <laughs> Great job. And Bradley Cooper has amazing skin. His The color of his skin in that movie is, I don't know what color you would call that, uh, Christy, but it's like bronze almost. You know, I mean, he's so attractive in pretty much every movie he's ever in. He's hard to not watch, but uh, Star is Born. I almost picked that as my song because I love that movie so much. The whole soundtrack is actually amazing. Um, it is. But, uh, yeah, Tina, your homework is go check out Star is Born and we'll do a review next time on Legal Face Off. Sounds good. Lisa or Leslie, do you want to jump in with uh, your favorite Gaga? This is definitely your era. Leslie in particular, what do you got? Any Gaga songs that we haven't mentioned? feel like you all mentioned all the great ones um i haven't even seen the movie um but i love the song yeah um, from a star is born and wow. that's gonna be my pick can't go wrong with that that's drew moses of sodoro law group and christy dosh with sports business thank you guys for joining us here on the legal grab bag and thanks to all of our guests today barbara mcquade Richard Daynard, Donna Kelly, Sanford Williams, Drew Moses, Christy Dosh, as I just mentioned, again, for joining us on The Legal Faceoff on WGN. And as always, thanks to our great producer, Ben Anderson, Rich Lankoff of Downey and Lankoff, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. For everyone, I'm Kevin Wells in for Joe Brand. We'll join you here in a couple of weeks on The Legal Faceoff on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lankoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.